morning. It's always a delight to be able to preach and hope this morning is beneficial to you as it's been beneficial to me studying it. I hope it's coherent as I've had a whole week to process through it and you'll have significantly less time. (laughs) I'll be starting in John 13 and we'll do 1 through 35. Begin there by reading through it and as I read, listen for the words of love and glory and how God is going to use those to teach us about loving one another. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, 
was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you are doing, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, give your grace and your insight that we might hear your word, believe it, and do according to it. Pray that you would bless the meditations of my heart, the words of my lips would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. It is in that name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Every act of Jesus, every act that he did, was an act of love toward his disciples. Here, God is going to give us an example and pull back the curtain to how Jesus served in every way, loving us in every act, giving love to us. If you remember in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's the Syrian army is surrounding the city that Elisha is in. And Elisha's servant is really fearful. The whole Syrian army is outside his door, basically. And he goes to Elisha and asks him, or tells him, the whole Syrian army is outside. And Elisha prays that God would open his eyes so that he might see. And God pulls back that curtain so that he can see, so that Elisha's servant can see that the, there's a greater army out there, an army from heaven that is greater than the Syrian army that is protecting Elisha and that whole town. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to see in this one passage how God has pulled aside the curtain to show us how Jesus, in every act that he does, is loving his disciples. So we might start with 
the pattern of Jesus' life so far. When it says at the end of verse 1, He loved them to the end. This is has been the pattern of Jesus' life the whole time. All through His life, it has been His way of doing things. That He loves His people. He loves them to the end. And we're going to see this example as just one thing that God pulls out and we'll take it apart to see how Jesus does that. And then we'll look further down at how God calls us to do the same, to serve the same way, to love the same way. How are we going to just apply this first part here? Just this first, that everything that Jesus does is an act of love toward his disciples. First, we need to know what his, who his disciples are. Are you a disciple, right? This is all only for Jesus' disciples. Now, how do you know if you're a disciple? How, have, you, have you thought before this that maybe it's only the twelve in that room? And it's not just the twelve in that room. But Jesus' disciples are all those who believe him and follow him, right? So we can ask ourselves some questions. We can ask, do I believe Jesus Christ? Do I believe he is the Son of God? Do I believe that he has lived his whole life to this point? Not for himself, not because he needed something. He didn't come to earth desiring to gain something, but he came to serve, to pour out his whole life. Do I believe that? Do I believe that he earned the perfect life that I I couldn't do? Do I believe that he has replaced my life with his perfect life, my evil life with his perfect life? Do I believe that his death on the cross has covered over my sins, has blotted them out, that his suffering replaced what I deserved? Do I believe those things? Now, if you are a disciple, then this too you need to believe, that every act of Jesus is an act of love toward his disciples, toward you as a disciple. That Jesus acts not only in the past like this, but even today, he's sitting at God's right hand interceding for you. He is there reminding that reminding God that though your sin is so evil and so egregious so hateful in the sight of a holy God that Jesus paid his blood for you even to this day Jesus is acting in a way that shows that his every act is a love is an act of love toward you we move on now to The second part where Jesus washes the disciples' feet as an act of love toward them. So here, again, is the specifics where, where Jesus is pulling back the curtain to give us an example of his love. If you remember in Philippians 2, Philippians 2 talks about the humility that Christians should have. And Paul goes right to Jesus and says, look at how Jesus came down from heaven. Look at how he put on human flesh. Look at how he served. Look at how he served even to his death. Right? All of that is Philippians. In Philippians is Paul telling them what Jesus 
is doing right here. Right? He doesn't make a direct reference, but this is an illustration of what Paul is talking about. We have seven things that we're going to look through as we as we pull apart this, as we see that curtain pulled aside and see behind what what how is Jesus serving? How is he loving his disciples in this time? So first, Jesus rises from the table at the end of or at the beginning of verse four, excuse me. He rose from supper. Now he would have of course had the seat of honor, the the greatest seat there. He's the host. He's the one that has everyone over. He gets up from his seat, leaves his seat, just the same way as he does in Philippians, where he comes down from heaven. He comes down from heaven to serve. And then the next part of verse 4, our second thing, is that Jesus wraps himself with a towel. So not only has he risen from the table, but he's wrapped himself in a towel. He has put on the clothing of a servant, Right, Just like Philippians 2 says, he's put on the servant's garments. He's come down and put on human flesh so that he can serve. So he puts on the towel and then he begins the process of serving. He serves his disciples by washing their feet. I don't know, there's a, there's a little bit of the story in Abraham, way back in Genesis 18, where the Lord comes to Abraham and he's going to tell him eventually in this chapter, that in Genesis 18, that he, is going, he, Abraham, is going to have his first child in a year from that point. But before he does that, he appears by the oaks of Mamre to, at Hebron to Abraham, and Abraham, I can only imagine, was beside himself with what to do and has no idea how to properly honor these these men that have come, one of them being the Lord. He has no idea how, how to do that. But one thing he does is has water brought so that they can wash their feet. Traveling any time from Abraham's time to Jesus' time, which is a quite a few hundred years, uh, there that whole time people walked in sandals and their feet became dirty. They're, they walked the same paths as their animals. So you can imagine what, what would begin to accumulate on the roads, on their feet, on the, their sandals. So it was natural to offer someone water when they came so that they might wash their feet. Now, Abraham did this, brings the water out and presents it before the Lord saying, you can wash your feet now. And we can only assume that uh, the Lord then did so. Jesus turns this kind of on its head, right? He brings the water. He, the Lord, is bringing the water. He brings it to his servant and then he washes the feet of his servant. Abraham didn't even wash the feet of the Lord. But the Lord, Jesus Christ, comes and he serves and washes the feet of his disciples. Twelve of them too, not just one or two, but all twelve of them. So that was the, the third, that Jesus serves his disciples. 
And then we see with Peter, the fourth, how Jesus persists in serving. Persists in serving the, the stubborn and the ignorant. Peter is both of those, a good example of who we are and how we often treat the Lord. First, he says, you can't wash my feet. I'm going to prevent you. Even when Jesus tells him, you don't understand yet, you'll understand later, he says no. He doesn't even want to understand. He's ignorant and stubborn. He doesn't, he doesn't want to. But then the Lord opens his eyes and says, you will have no place with me. So when Jesus is persisting, he's persisting through that through that stubbornness, through that ignorance, and continuing to serve anyway. Fourthly, that that was the fourth, excuse me. Fifthly, Jesus serves because of his relationship with the disciples. His relationship is what is most important to him, and that is what he is saying when he says, if I do not wash your feet in verse 8. You have no share with me. If Jesus does not wash Peter's feet, that is an, that tells Jesus that Peter Peter has no place, no no fellowship, no relationship with Jesus. And of course, Peter because he is a believer, he does love Jesus, immediately turns on that and clings to it and says no, wash wash me completely. And Jesus says, well, that's not necessary right now. You have been bathed and you are clean and therefore only your feet need washed. Well, as part of this, I think it's helpful to understand that that relationship was more than a friendship here. So, looking at the the relationship that Jesus and Peter are referencing, it's a relationship that goes much deeper than that. It's a relationship between a Savior and the saved, a Savior and a sinner. So we find out in Ephesians 5.26 that Jesus is washing, is cleansing his bride, the church, by washing her in the water of his word. And we find that there's, that means there's one washing, one washing for the whole church. There's a way that Jesus has washed, has in a sense bathed the whole church and cleansed them. And then we find out in other places like 1 John 1 9, where if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So there we find something that we need to be doing frequently, right? It's not the one washing that Jesus was talking about, but it's every time that we sin, we confess our sins, and then we God cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So I think there's a clear parallel there between the washing that Jesus was talking about. You've, you've been saved. Now we continue this relationship by repent, repenting and believing. We continue this relationship by you confessing your sins and believing that they are forgiven because God is cleansing you. So your feet are washed.
So when he said, we get more evidence of this when he says, not all of you are clean, right? He knew the one that would betray him. So Judas had never been completely cleaned. Uh, so there's a, there's a lack of relationship there. Judas is a good pretender, so the disciples don't know, but that relationship is a deep relationship that Jesus is continuing. He's serving on that level. Six is that Jesus serves the imposter. Notice that nowhere in here is Judas called out as Jesus didn't wash his feet. Jesus didn't do this part to him. Jesus loved Judas less, right? Judas is loved the same way that everyone else was. He, he gets his feet washed. And washing his feet, no one, no one sees any difference, right? It, through verse 5, we know that Jesus has started washing the disciples' feet. And then we get Peter. And in 11, we know that Judas is still there because he says, you're not all clean, and then 12, he says, when he had washed their feet, so he's finished washing all of their feet. Judas is definitely there, but no one can tell that he has been served any differently, that he has been loved any less, that Jesus has served him the same way he has served the others. And even later in this text, when Jesus sends him out, they start making excuses in their mind of, well, he must have sent him out to go prepare something for the supper or to give something to the poor. I mean, he, Jesus, loved Judas enough that the, the other disciples couldn't tell a difference. Seventh, Jesus considers no service or person beneath him. In 12 through 17, we see how Jesus then when he finishes, takes up his clothes again, resumes his place, again, Philippians 2, and then he starts explaining to people, to his disciples, what he has done. And he explains there that he has served, and since they're his disciples, they're not better than he is. So they should serve in the same way. So Jesus considers no service beneath him, no person beneath him like Judas, but serves them all and then expects the same from his disciples. After he is, finishes explaining, Jesus, we're told, is troubled in his spirit in verse 21 and identifies Judas as the betrayer, right? At first, he's vague about it. Peter gets John to ask who it is specifically, even when they're told. Again, they, they don't understand. But Jesus sends him out. So our, our third major point is that Jesus sends Judas, the betrayer, out as an act of love toward his disciples. So just as... Jesus always acts in his 
in love toward his disciples. And just as he has washed the disciples' feet for their, because of his love for them, now he sends Judas out as part of his love for them. Jesus knew Judas would betray him, right? Way back since John 6, at least, Jesus identifies Judas as there is one of you who is a devil, he says in chapter 6. That's more than a year before this, at least. It might have been longer, but at least a year before this, Jesus has known that Judas is the betrayer. And even now, he doesn't restrain him. He doesn't say, hey, we outnumber this guy 12 to 1. I don't even have to get my hands dirty. I can just have the other 11 grab him and put him in the closet for a night. Nothing. He he keeps this pattern. He knows God's plan and sends Judas out. Right? The Satan has entered him and Jesus uses his authority to command even Satan, go out and do what you're going to do. And why? Not, not because he wants to be a, betrayed or has any uh, need to be, but because he loves his disciples and knows that this is the way that they'll be saved. This is the way. He has to be betrayed. He has to go to the cross. He has to die for the sins of his people. Or there is no salvation. He sends Judas out because of his immense love for the disciples. He knows he's going to suffer, but he does it anyway. Fourth, Jesus loved his own to the end for God's glory. In verses 31 and 32, you see how Jesus' every act of love toward his disciples comes because he is seeking first, first of all, the glory of God. Remember in John 11, when Lazarus is sick, and Mary and Martha send to Jesus and say, the one you love, right, a disciple that Jesus loves, is sick. He, what does Jesus do? Jesus waits two days, right? Purposefully not going to see Lazarus. Now, if you went to Mary and Martha and Lazarus before Jesus gets there, when Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. If you went to them and said, so does it seem like Jesus is acting in love toward his disciples with every act he does? They would probably say, no, Lazarus is sick. We told him he's sick. He's still not here. He hasn't come. He's not that far away. He could have made it here, probably, right? But what if we told them, oh no, he purposefully waited two days. You know, he, he heard, and then he waited two more days. Would, would they then say, oh well, of course, that was the loving thing to do. But in Jesus' mind, he knew how to love them best, was to love them for the glory of God. And he knew God would be most glorified if he loved them by waiting two days until Lazarus had died 
and then going to him and raising him from the dead. So Jesus' every act is dictated by what brings glory to God, what brings the most glory to God. It's not for the comfort of the disciple. It's not for the happiness of the disciple. It's not as the disciple understands what's good for me. It's what glorifies God. So in some cases, that's Jesus doing a miracle to put a coin inside a fish's mouth so that Peter can pay the temple tax for both of them, the small things. And on the other end, that's Jesus waiting for two days before he comes and treats Lazarus, resurrects him from the dead. So in the small and the great, Jesus is evaluating everything and working to the greatest glory of God. We need to remember this because many, many times life is so confusing that we try to pin God down. We try to say, this is what God's doing, and if He doesn't do it, then He doesn't exist, or He, he I, I don't believe in Him, or uh, I've lost some favor with Him, or I need to pray more. Maybe God is just acting as He always does, and acting because He loves us, but He loves us to His glory, which is our, the greatest way He can love us. More than our comfort and our joy and pleasure, He knows that the best way to accomplish those things, even when we can't see them, is to love us for His glory. In the last part in verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives this new commandment. Verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So from that, we can take out four applications. If you noticed earlier, when I went through all the things, all the seven things about Jesus and his service, how I didn't, I didn't take any time to apply those, to teach you how those affect your life. And that's because I think this does it perfectly, is this Jesus is saying, this is how you love, love one another. This is a new commandment. Because Jesus, for the first time, has given an absolutely perfect example of what this looks like. His whole life has looked like this, right? So now he can say, love like this, because you know what this looks like. Four things. First, love humbly. Jesus is acting in humility when he is loving his disciples. So, when he gets up from his seat, when he puts on the clothes of the servant, when he goes, when he washes their feet, which was below any anyone in the room, you know, a servant's job, a, a gross and disgusting job, when he does when he does all of that, he's humbling himself. He's putting himself at the lowest level. So how do we do that? How do we do that in the church? And 
there are many ways, and I'll let you fill in the many more. But we can we can always be doing something, and nothing, no job is beneath us. So whether it's washing the dishes or bringing something in for the morning snack time, or it's serving another person by giving them a ride to church, or whatever it is, there's nothing below you, nothing beneath you, nothing that you say, oh, well, that that person or that type of person does that. I am the one who collects the money. I'm the one who does the music. I'm the one who preaches. I'm the one who does children's service. I don't do that that level of thing. Jesus says there's no there's no scale there. You you do it because you're a member of the church because you love the other disciples in the church. You're you became a member and made a covenant that you would do some of these things. I I have that here and my kids decorated it earlier so yours won't look like this, but we have one and just some of the things that it it tells us that we have already promised to do affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. When's the last time that you felt that you were fulfilling effective care and watchfulness over your brother and sister in Christ, over a fellow member of this church? Because we, we've, we've promised we would. We've made a covenant together. Faithfully admonish and entreat one another. Pray for ourselves and others. The the cards that Andy has printed out that have all of us on there for for a specific day of the month. Uh, have you gone through that? Do you go through that? Do you pray for yourself and and the others in this church? Rejoice at at each other's happiness and to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Those are just some of the things in the covenant that. Those are examples of ways to love each other. And those are ways that we've already promised as members to love each other. So that's a good place to start. Second, love the difficult. Love the difficult. Some people speak before they think, like Peter did. Some people, even after they speak, refuse to understand like Peter did. He, he wanted to remain ignorant. But we serve the difficult. We serve them even when, when they're obstinate, even when they're, it's difficult to serve someone. We still love them. We still engage with them. We still work with them. And also, let's not forget the, the love Jesus had for Judas as well. He served Judas. Now, Judas was a really good pretender, apparently. He, he pretended as well as any of the other disciples that he was a believer. There was no way for the rest of them to tell that he, he didn't believe, that he wasn't completely washed. So if you can, say, tell that someone isn't completely washed by their actions, that doesn't fit into this category. That's a whole different sermon series. But if you can't tell, you're, you serve them anyway. There, there's no... There's no my group of people that I serve. And that, that's another group where I don't get him or I don't understand that or they're weird. So I, I don't, I just, 
stay over here and, and hang out with my group and, and I serve them. I do it well, but not, not those others. You know, I push them just a little further away. Someone else will serve them. There's no groups. We, we serve each other no matter what it is, what, what reason. Even if they're only posing as a Christian and we can't tell, we serve them. The third, love to the end. Love to the end. Love such that you pour yourself out completely. This is how Jesus loved. He had everything taken care of in his life. He didn't have any needs at all. So he was fully able and willing and joyful and excited about serving other people. The same is true for you. Jesus has done everything that you need forever so that you can live, so that his disciples can live with him forever. Everything that you need is done. So what do you pour your energy into now? If everything, if you really believe that you're saved by faith alone, that Jesus has provided all that you need to be with him forever, then you can pour your love into others. You can love others richly and deeply and passionately and joyfully because you don't have any needs of your own. You can pour yourself out completely because Jesus has done everything else. Fourth, love to the glory of God. Love to the glory of God. What pleases God, what glorifies God. This is no secret. It's written in His Word. So open, open your Bible. Know your Bible well. If you know your Bible well and study it with others, you will come to what glorifies God. It's on virtually every page. You can learn what glorifies God. And as you learn those things, you learn how to love people best. Even when it's not in their comfort zone, even when it's difficult, even when you do have to go to that person that you know is a believer but has not been acting like a believer, you can say to them, look, this is difficult for me. This is not what I find fun doing to confront you about your sin, but it's necessary. This is what most glorifies God. We don't do it with joy. We don't gloat over it. But we can address it even when it's difficult because we desire the glory of God more than the comfort and pleasure of other people. So those are the four. Love humbly, love the difficult, love to the end, and love to the glory of God. This is the new commandment and Jesus has given us a great example of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a joy it is to open your word and to understand what you have set down for us. We pray that this week we would remember Jesus' complete and total work, how he accomplished so much that we might have eternal life. 
And as we have eternal life, we can love each other fully. And we can go beyond that and love our neighbors as well. And love them richly. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember in this week your example. The example of your son, Jesus Christ, to love his disciples in every act that he did. And to never sacrifice your glory in order to do so. But knowing that the best way to love people is for your glory, by doing the things that glorify you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.